I would like to start by thanking all the people that made it possible to put this thing together. I know that these things don't just happen, that there's a terrific amount of work done. This one has run beautifully. How about a hand for the committee that did the work? And I'd like to add a special thanks to the lady who's sign language, and we can show her how we appreciate her. That's I love you in sign. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a terrific job. Uh, usually they have two sign languages because it's very tiring on the hands. Okay. Uh, my name is Bob and I'm an enthusiastic member of Alnon. I think I got here like uh, most of you Alanons. I love an alcoholic. And my wife, Betty, who died three and a half years ago, was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous with 19 years of sobriety when she passed away. <laughs> you know, I don't think you're automatically an Al-Anon just because you're associated with somebody in the AA program. I think it requires some work on our part. And for me, it involves this. I need to live the steps. I need to abide by the traditions. I need to attend the meetings regularly, and I need to have a sponsor. And I do these things. Uh, my first sponsor was a woman. When I first came into AA, and I, uh, by the way, I'm a member of the Anchor Eleanor Group in Gainesville, Texas, and I started this journey with you in April of 1979. <clears throat> But when I first came into Al-Anon, the only guy around was a young guy about the age of my son, and I didn't think we had too much going. So I found this lady who was a real staunch Al-Anon, been the first delegate from the state of Texas, who was even older than I, and asked her to be my sponsor, and she's been my service sponsor ever since. Now, I, I know we don't encourage people of the opposite sex to be our sponsors, but I think you can tell by looking at me that this sex thing is not a very serious problem. <laughs> hey, now don't misunderstand me. I love to see you beautiful women. I just can't remember why. I'd like to be able to tell you that I volunteered for service, but that's not the way it happened. This is an honest program. My sponsor goaded me into it. And I've been the GR, and I've been the DR, and I served three years with the West Texas Assembly. And several years ago, I got a call from our central office asking me if I would consider myself to be a candidate for trustee at large for all of Al-Anon. And I seem to have the educational qualifications for which they searched and the business experience. I prayed about it. I talked to my group about it. And I called them back and I said, yes, please consider me to be a candidate for trustee at large for all of Al-Anon. And guess what? I didn't get it. <laughs> oh, don't we hate rejection? <clears throat> my first reaction was, hey. If they didn't want me, why did they bother me? 
Then my program came to my rescue like it always will, it'll let it. And it said, hey, whoever got that job is infinitely better capable of handling their needs at this time, is a person for the job, and maybe, just maybe, my Heavenly Father has something else He wants me to do. And I'm totally free of that. Totally free of that. I, uh, although I've been, only been an Al Anon 22 years, I am somewhat of an anachronism. I'm the only person still living that was present when the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous met for the very first time. Mother's Day, Akron, Ohio, 1935. I was a teenager, and I rode out with my dad and my mom to meet Bill W. for the first time. My dad had come home the day before Mother's Day with a potted plant, set it down. He was potted. <laughs> Went upstairs and passed out. Well, Mom was a friend of Henrietta Cyberling's, and she picked up the phone and called and said, Ann, there's a man out here that thinks he can help Bob. Bring him right on out. Well, Mom had to explain that Bob was in no shape to talk to anybody, but she said, I'll get him out there tomorrow. Well, he had a terrible hangover. He said one of the worst he's ever had. And as we rode along, he said, okay, 15 minutes of this bird is all I want. But it wasn't 15 minutes. He and Bill went off in a room by themselves, and they talked for many hours. And as a result of that meeting, at my mom's invitation, Bill came, and he lived at our home all, this, all summer long, all three months during the summer season. And this is the time and place that Alcoholics Anonymous program was started. I'd like to take you back in my memory to those times. We lived in a one-industry town, Akron, Ohio, and it was in the middle of the last Great Depression. Nobody had any money. Uh, all, we made tires in Akron, Ohio at the time. All the tire manufacturers were there. Goodyear, Goodrich, General, Firestone, Miller, Cyberling. And they made tires. Well, when the Depression hit, people quit buying cars, and they didn't need tires. And the rubber factories went down to two days a week. And... There were strong men on the street corner selling apples for five cents apiece, trying to support their family. Very, very difficult time. Everyone was broke. But maybe this has, was providentially arranged because since there was not much work, people had time for each other. And I think this was an absolute essential for these programs to get off the ground because people had to have time to communicate with each other, to visit with each other, to discuss these things, to formulate ideas. I think, that, again, it was provided by a loving Heavenly Father. I want to talk to you about several things today. I want to talk to you about starting from nothing, because perhaps some of you here feel that right now that's where your life is, that you're starting from nothing. And I want to talk to you about miracles, because perhaps there is somebody here that is in bad need of a miracle. And I, I'm not going to talk to you about at length about being miserable. I'm, a, I'm going on the basic assumption that everybody here already knows how to be miserable. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about recovery, okay? 
I want to talk to you about recovery in my family's home. I want to talk to you about recovery in my home. For you see, this program was available when Betty and I needed it. You know, it's not what we add to the temple past, but how well we keep it green. I want to talk to you about these people. My dad, Dr. Bob, you'd have loved the guy. Now, the pictures that, he, that they see of him, he looks like a real grim old guy, but he wasn't. He had a wonderful sense of humor. When I brought my bride-to-be back home in the 1940s, early 40s, my wife was tall and slender, and Dad uh, looked her over and got me aside and said, she's built for speed and light housekeeping. <laughs> And I want to tell you his sex and hygiene lecture to me as a teenager. He got me up in the bathroom one day and closed the door, and I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to find out all about it now. He said to me, flies spread disease. Keep yours buttoned. He was a great guy to travel with. He could, you know, get down and, and have fun. He wasn't all stern, like you might think from the pictures. One time, uh, he wanted to go back to his beloved Vermont. He was born in Vermont, educated in Vermont, was a graduate of Dartmouth, one of the Ivy League colleges. And he wanted to go back to Vermont, and then he wanted to go on up into Canada. And he had some sort of an old car. You remember, this is a depression. It didn't run very good. And I had a Ford Roadster, a Model A Ford Roadster, that I had just bought for $12.50. <laughs> and the reason it was so cheap, it didn't have a top. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, do you think that thing will run to Vermont and up into Canada? And I said, yeah, I think it will, Dad, but it doesn't have a top. What will we do when it rains? He said, we're going to get wet. <laughs> And we toured a high school buddy of mine and the three of us in this old Ford just had a wonderful time. He was that kind of a guy. Dr. Baum had, uh, was a graduate of Dartmouth, and then he'd worked out in industry for a couple of years. Uh, worked at Filene Department Store in Boston, as a matter of fact, and went back to St. Johnsbury, Vermont, his home, and prevailed upon his dad, who was a probate judge there, to allow him to come out to Chicago and go to medical school. And he came out to Chicago, and his drinking was progressive. It was getting worse and worse. And, and he got busted out of one medical school, managed to get in another one, somehow managed to graduate, and somehow obtained a coveted internship there at City Hospital in Akron. And it was coveted because they had some advanced equipment. And he moved to Akron, Ohio, and married my mom after a whirlwind courtship of only 17 years. <laughs> Dr. Bob thought things over very carefully. <laughs> he went along on a pretty even keel, you know, and uh, was very, very steady, and I think that that was, again, part of the necessity of this partnership that he was to have with Bill. Uh, Dr. Bob also had a tattoo. 
Now, he was a surgeon, you understand. They wore these green surgical outfits, and he had a dragon that started up at his shoulder on his left arm and went around and round, and it was blue with red fire. And I said, Dad, how in the world did you ever get that one? He said, boy, that was a dandy. <laughs> And he had a dragon that started up at his shoulder on his left arm and went around and round, and it was blue with red fire. And I said, Dad, how in the world did you ever get that one? He said, Boy, that was a dandy. <laughs> he would have had to stay drunk at least a week to get for that job, you know. <laughs> and he was always sorry he got it, but he had it. <laughs> Now, you know, Bill was also a Vermonter. They were born within 100 miles of each other. Uh, Dad at St. Johnsbury and Bill at East Dorset, but they had never met. But Bill, you love Bill, too. Some of you knew Bill. You see, Bill was 15 years younger than my dad when they met. Bill was 40. Dad was 55. But <clears throat> Bill was the exact opposite of my dad, if you can imagine that. Bill was garrulous. He was a visitor. He loved to talk. When Bill came to visit with you, he was going to stay. He hung in there. His mood swung. He was either high as a Georgia pine or low as a snake. He never seemed to really level out. <clears throat> Bill was a visionary. I think Bill Wilson could see further up the road than any human I've ever known. And these two guys fit together perfectly. Again, I think it was arranged by our Heavenly Father. Two total opposites. Never had an argument. Never had an argument. You know, I think, folks, that if uh, any two of us are exactly alike, one of us is unnecessary. <laughs> but these two men stayed up late night every night and they talked about this and tried to formulate a program that might be helpful I think they only had two things going that I could see they both had open spiritual minds and they had the desire to be of service to another human being now they couldn't raise 50 bucks between them they started from absolutely nothing but the longer I'm around this programs or these programs, the more convinced I am that a loving God has managed to guide these programs, direct them, keep them from going awry to what we have today. Can you imagine what it looks like in my eyes, knowing it started with two guys with no money and nothing going for them to what we have today? Just look at this room, all of you here. All in my lifetime, absolutely miraculous. Well, the first one I remember was a young guy by the name of Eddie R. And Eddie had just been thrown out of his house for non-payment of rent. So they moved Eddie, and he had a little cute little blonde wife and two stair-step kids, and they moved the whole family into our house. We still had a house. Took Eddie upstairs and locked him in the upstairs. As he, so he'd be available as they got this knowledge. <laughs> hey, you got to remember, folks, they're just trying to stay a page ahead of Eddie's. You know, nothing's written. 
But Eddie was an agile young guy, and we had downspouts. And Eddie would open the second story window, slide down the downspouts, and escape. And they had to postpone Eddie's recovery long enough to recapture him. <laughs> One time Eddie got as far away as Cleveland, Ohio, 35 miles, and called him up on the phone, collect, to let them know that he was going to commit suicide. But that he would give him time to drive up and witness the event. <laughs> Can you imagine a more inauspicious start to a wonderful movie? But when Eddie sobered up, he had a few mental problems that hadn't come to the front, and he began beating up on this little woman to whom he was married, and then he began chasing my mom around the house with a butcher knife. So we held a group conscience meeting. <laughs> and it, it was decided the only thing to do with Eddie was for his little wife to take him back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and recommit him in a mental institution, and this was done. And Bill and Dad were crestfallen. Here's their first attempt to sober up another alcoholic together. Total failure. But I want to tell you folks something. At my dad's funeral, 15 years later, a guy walked up to me. And he said, do you know me? And I looked at him and I said, yeah, I know you, you're Eddie. And he said, that's right. And he said, I want you to know I'm a member of the Youngstown, Ohio AA group and I've been sober one year. Wow. <laughs> so we never know the result. Our part is to take that hand that reaches out for help. That's part of our primary purpose, to take that hand that reaches out for help. We don't have to be fully qualified to make a 12-step call. We go with what we have. Nobody here, I can promise you, is fully 12 qualified to make a 12-step call, but we go with what we have and we do the very best we can. The point is that we go, that we go. We're not responsible for the results. I think the results depend perhaps on the zeal of the person receiving the message and, and the will of our Heavenly Father. Our part is to be there when someone reaches out for help. Hospital beds were very expensive in those days. A double was uh, $16. I think they're up a little now, but, uh, <laughs> you know, nobody had the 16 bucks, so we started taking these people into our home. And now I want to tell you about somebody that nobody knows much about, and I think maybe she wanted it that way, and that's my mom. Mom was a graduate of Wellesley, one of the fine women's colleges back in the East, and she went there on a scholarship. Mom's great uncle was the president of the Santa Fe Railroad, and in those days the president of the railroad had his own private rail car, could tie onto trains wherever trains went, and it was very opulent. And he used to like Mom, and he would take Mom with her on some of these trips, so she got to see the, the genteel side of life. Mom was a school teacher. Mom had led a very sheltered, protected life and was very easily shocked until AA. <laughs> but remember, this is the lady that said, Hey, Bill, she didn't say, Come over and have soup next Tuesday. She said, Bill, come live with us. 
maybe you two can work out a program. And you know, my dad went to a medical convention back in, in uh, Atlantic City. He had a terrible thirst for knowledge, <laughs> also for scotch. <laughs> he just got awful drunk, came back to town, and uh, his office nurse and her husband picked him up and sobered him up. He, he didn't like Mom to scold him. And uh, Bill was about to leave and go back to New York. Mom said, no, Bill, stay a little longer. Please stay a little longer. Don't give up yet. Mom kept a spiritual notebook. And as we, you remember, we were taking these wet drunks into our house. Oh, it was exciting. We were teenagers. Yeah, my sister and I were teenagers, and you talk about action. <laughs> you had a whole house full of wet drugs. Boy, it was just, yeah. <laughs> and it was fun. It was so much better than life had been. <laughs> and Mom's on the telephone. You know, she's getting calls from people, from loved ones, and so forth. Mom organized a woman's group for wives of alcoholics in 1936. So she recognized from the word go that it was an illness that affected the whole family. Now, Mom uh, insisted everybody that stayed there have a quiet time. Now, remember, this is the lady that's cooking the food. This is the lady that's making the beds. This is the lady that's cleaning up the messes. This is the lady that's staying on the telephone. This is the lady that required everybody that stayed there to have a quiet time in the morning that they might feel near to God. And she never lost faith in these guys. And she, I, well, Bill W. said it better than anybody I know. He said, Ann Smith is the mother of AA. It's, that's, that's true. That's what mom was, the mother of AA. And it wasn't an easy thing. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous was not just an instant success. It was thought of as a cult and a bunch of nuts. Uh, we were even kicked out of the Presbyterian Church on account of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I never heard of anybody being kicked out of the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> but we were, and she's the one that endured the snubs, and it wasn't an easy thing. And, this, and yet uh, very few people know about Mom, and I think maybe she wanted it that way. But I want to tell you about Mom. Mom took up smoking when she was 50. <laughs> and I said, Mom, you're not going to start smoking now, are you? She said, yes, and if you wait until you're 50, I won't say anything. <laughs> well, as a, an economy move, uh, I don't know what cigarettes were like, 15 cents a pack then. So Mom went out and bought a Target machine. Now, any of you ever know what a Target machine is to roll your own cigarettes? I know some of you do. Ed does. You laid the paper along the side at a little trough, and you poured the tobacco in it, and then it had a lever. You threw it over and threw it back, and you had a cigarette. Well, my sister and I would have been stealing Mom's cigarettes, and we thought that this, this uh, process was a little bit beneath our dignity. So we volunteered to help her, and we rolled her a pack. But instead of using tobacco, we used shavings out of the pencil sharpener. <laughs> well, when Mom lit the first one, of course, the fire didn't go out. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and we're watching carefully. And after about the second one, she said, you know, these aren't nearly as good as those lucky strikes. <laughs> Mom went to the early meetings. They were all open meetings. Mom always wore the same black dress and sat in the back and greeted everybody that came in. And when Dad got on his feet financially, Mom got three new dresses. And someone said, Ann, are you going to wear one of your new dresses to the meeting tonight? And she said, oh, no. said, I'm going to wear the old black dress. There'll be somebody come through those doors that can't afford a new dress. And that's a kind of a beautiful, beautiful lady that my, my mom was. Well, at first, of course, Alcoholics Anonymous was just a trickle. And then Jack Alexander's article came out. And it, that's another, I can talk to you all day about miracles. You know, uh, the editor of the Saturday Evening Post, uh, Bill News, the owner, and he got the owner to tell the editor to write an article about this wonderful thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And it made the editor mad, so he assigned his hatchet man, Jack Alexander, to expose Alcoholics Anonymous. And every, the people that were advising him said, okay, Jack, go out into the country, attend meetings around the country. Don't stick right here in New York. Go see it." And he did, and of course he wrote this glowing article. And as a result of that article, the, and an article in the first before that in the Cleveland Plain Dip, this trickle became an absolute deluge. Shoo. The word got out that there was a doctor in Akron, Ohio, who quote, fixed drunks. And they came in on the train and on the buses, and dropped off by loving relatives. <laughs> <laughs> Dropped off by relatives who weren't so loving. <laughs> and again, I think our Heavenly Father provided the right person at the right time. Sister Ignatia. Sister was the admitting nurse in a Catholic hospital there, St. Thomas Hospital there in Akron. And she and my dad prevailed upon the uh, Mother Superior to allow them to start a little alcoholic ward in that hospital whereby people could be admitted with a disease of alcoholism for the very first time. And it was just the flower room. It was seven cots in the flower room. You know, the room where they uh, dressed up the flowers for the patients and so forth. And I often wonder what those early guys thought when they came to and looked around. So nothing but flowers. <laughs> but anyway, that was the start. It's in that hospital, been continually in that hospital. It's not the flower room. It's the whole fifth floor. But again, this was a... This was progress. This was progress. Did you folks ever think of the miracles that God has allowed to happen in order for us to all be here today? Let me run a couple by you. <clears throat> Money. You know, Bill and, and my dad were both broke. And they thought, oh, wouldn't this be wonderful if we had some money? We could set up treatment centers and hospitals, you know, for the treatment of alcoholics. And I'm sure my dad could see himself in his white coat welcoming the patients and Bill out on the street flagging them in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so 
So they went to New York City and they met with people with deep, deep pockets. And Mr. Rockefeller and his group listened very patiently. And they said, no, money will ruin it. And that's a miracle, folks. Now just imagine what would have happened in your mind's eye if Mr. Rockefeller and his group had dumped a million bucks on a hundred broke alcoholics. <laughs> it's just pretty horrible to think about, isn't it? <laughs> I bet we wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> Miracle. Anonymity. In the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, there were people with huge egos. Now, I know we don't have any of that anymore. <laughs> but hey, you can't be Mr. AA or Mrs. Al-Anon if nobody knows what your name is. And another thing that that has done is that it doesn't make any difference if you've been here 40 years like some of the gentlemen this morning or 40 days. We're all exactly the same. It, isn't that the way it should be? Miracle. God, as we understood him, was put in the steps to quiet a loudmouth agnostic from the name of, from California by the name of Jimmy B. Jimmy said, this God stuff will ruin it. It will run him out the door faster and we can drag him in. So to quiet Jimmy down, they put God as we understood him. And you know what that's done? That has allowed these, these programs to be acceptable all over the world. People that have an entirely different concept, perhaps, of a higher power than you and me. Just those words has to be a miracle. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When they first wrote it, they couldn't give it away. You know, it was in a bonded warehouse, and the guy wouldn't let them, any of them out until they had the dough in hand. So that they'd come up with a little bit of money and they'd buy a few. And then they'd sell them, and that allowed them to buy a few more. And that's the way it was. Totally, you know, very, very little circulation whatsoever. Now I understand that it's uh, the second highest uh, circulated uh, book in the world now, next to the Holy Bible. And as far as I know, you can't even buy one at a bookstore. And the beauty of it is those first 164 pages, even in the brand new edition, are exactly the same except for one word. Bill had had a spiritual experience, you know, they'd come on him all at once, boom. I want to see how she handles that one. <laughs> Most of us don't get it that way. It's, an, it's a gradual thing. So... The word changed from the first edition of the big book, from having had a spiritual experience to having had a spiritual what? Awakening. And that's the change. Now think, if you will, of the millions and millions of alcoholics that have tried to find a loophole in those first 164 pages. Written by people who weren't authors. Absolutely a miraculous book. Somehow they managed to plug them all miracle. Well, my dad only lived uh, 15 years. But in that length of time, he personally treated 
medically and AA-wise without charge over 5,000 alcoholics. I like to think of Dr. Bob as being Mr. 12-step. Bill was the writer, Bill was the visionary, but these two are both necessary. My dad had wonderful success at 12-step work, and Bill had, as you know, wonderful success in the, in the writing and promoting end of it. Perfect. You do you know that AA started to self-destruct between 1942 and 45? Yeah, the contributions to the New York office just stopped. There were people hanging out their shingles as AA's official representative. There were people establishing hospitals as AA's official hospital. There were people incorporating AA in different states. And a guy from North Carolina wrote to Bill and said, hey, Bill, we got to do something about this. He said, we're going to be like the Washingtonians. Now, many of you know that the Washingtonians was started by a group of six alcoholics from Baltimore decided they wanted to stop drinking. And they had a lot of things that uh, similar to what we do today. They had meetings, they traveled to each other's meetings, they had the idea of absolute abstinence from alcohol, and it grew, grew like wildfire. Now, I've got a book that said there were a quarter of a million of them in Ohio alone, but, and the people signed a pledge not to drink, which I thought was, yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> but anyhow, what happened to the Washingtonians simply? They decided if it was good for alcohol, it was good for everything. They got into all sorts of issues. They got into politics. They got into everything that had nothing to do with alcohol. They just went up, and they just blew apart. And in six years, they were gone. And I'll tell you how far gone they were. Bill had to go to the New York Library to find out who the Washingtonians were. So the 12 traditions were written. And Bill went around the country, stumped around the country in about 46, 47, trying to interest groups into the 12 traditions, and they wouldn't pay any attention to him. They said, Bill, go on back and run that in New York like you want to. We'll run it here like we want to. And they wouldn't pay any attention to it. So at the first international in 1950, and I was there, six guys got up. Each read two of the traditions, and they adopted them unanimously. And I say, what a miracle that is. That's the glue that holds us together, folks. That's these 12 traditions. That's the glue that holds us together. And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the first 11 traditions are damage control, possible, possible things that would have destroyed the movement or handled before they happened first 11 traditions. Absolute miracle. My dad was terminally ill at the time and uh, wanted to go back to his beloved Vermont one more time and my wife and I loaded him in the car and drove him back there and it was a sad trip. He knew he was dying and we knew he was dying but I wouldn't take for the caring and sharing that we had as we rode along in the car and sat on the edge of the bed at night. And we brought him back to Akron, Ohio, and then uh, I, at the time I had a flying job out in Dallas, and I had to get to work. And I never saw my dad alive again. But what a wonderful time we'd had. You see, my mom had died the year before, and he was very, very lonely and very ill. 
But what a wonderful time I was privileged to share with this beautiful guy. Well, in 1955, Bill invited us to the second international held in uh, St. Louis. And this is the international that uh, the clerical people, who, uh, people in the churches who had loved AA when AA wasn't cool, got up and gave talks. Dr. Sam Shoemaker from New York and Father Ed Dowling from St. Louis got up and gave talks. Beautiful talks, and fortunately, those talks were recorded. And they're in the book, AA Comes of Age, the chapter Religion Looks at AA, if any of you are interested. Beautiful talks by beautiful guys. Also, this is the convention where Bill turned AA over to the AAs. You see, in previous attempts to sober up alcoholics, this is my read on it. Two things happened. Either the founder died or moved away, and it fell. Well, you see, Bill, by turning it over to the AA and a, and a governing body, solved that problem. You know, the founders were mortal. That was one thing. And another thing that had destroyed previous attempts was no structure. Well, we already had the structure in place. We had the 12 steps, and we had the 12 traditions, and we had the 12 concepts all structured for us. And that's, I think, very, very important to our survival. I didn't go to another uh, convention for quite a while. <laughs> Betty and I were party animals, <laughs> and we loved to dance, and we loved to drink, and we went merrily on our way, and I darn sure wasn't telling anyone my father was Dr. Bob Smith. <laughs> but once in a while, somebody would find out about it and would say, uh, come to a meeting. And we would go, and we would uh, enjoy it. And on our way home, we'd say, oh, good for them. They needed that. <laughs> Now, Betty had poured her dad in a drying-out place in Denver in 1946, and he and another guy started Alcoholics Anonymous in New Mexico. So if there was ever two human beings that should have recognized alcoholism in their own home, it was Betty and me. But we didn't. We didn't. You see, we were different. <laughs> have any of you ever thought you were different? <laughs> mm. Well, when it finally got bad enough, and it did get bad, and I'm not going to dwell on it, uh, it was got so bad my mother-in-law said, Bob, why don't you tell her you want a divorce? That'll shock her. This is her mother. <laughs> I thought, that's a great idea. And I did, and it didn't shock her near as much as I thought it ought to. <laughs> I was really pretty disappointed. Yeah, I was really pretty disappointed. But what I didn't realize was the alcoholism had become the number one priority, and the family had moved down the line. It's the nature of the disease. But anyhow, and we didn't just jump right into AA. We tried to gussy it up, and maybe some of you have done that. And well, Let me tell you a little story to kind of illustrate it. Two, two uh, uh, hunters loved to hunt up in the uh, wilds of Alaska, and they would hire an aviation company to come in and drop them off at a lake and then pick them up a week later. And the little plane came in, and uh, 
after a week, and one of the hunters said, oh, we're glad to see you. We've had a wonderful hunt. We got three moose. And the pilot said, three moose, you two guys, and me in this little plane? And one of the hunters said, oh, don't worry about it. said, man came in with a plane just like yours last year, and we had three moose, and we didn't have any trouble getting on. He said what he did was he taxied up the river and got a longer takeoff run. And this pilot thought, well, I've got to try it. I'm pretty young with the company. So he backed off, and they got a long run, and sure enough, the little plane takes off, and they start back towards civilization. But the engine is working so hard, it begins to overheat, loses power, and way out in the middle of nowhere, it crashes. Well, one of the hunters pulls his buddy out from under the plane and dusts him off, and his buddy said, oh, where in the world are we? The other said, you know, I think we're within 100 yards of where we crashed last year. <laughs> And that was us, trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. When it got bad enough, as it happened, a young pharmacist called my wife and said, okay, we're starting a group here in Nocona, Texas, for people that have a problem like you and me, will you come? And she went, and she never took another drink. Didn't go to treatment center. She hung on by her fingernails. She said, I don't recommend it that way, but I'll tell you one thing, you darn sure won't forget it. And she was running off and leaving me. She was interested in that program, that AA program, was working it to the best of her ability, and she was actually running off and leaving me. And I thought, gee, I, I, I need some of this. I want some of this. And somebody said, well, Bob, why don't you go to Al-Anon? And I thought, well, why not? I don't mind joining the auxiliary. So... <laughs> I got in my car, and I drove 40 miles over to Gainesville, and I showed up at my first Al-Anon meeting. And I look around the room, and I'm the only guy. Room full of women. Well, I immediately got mixed emotions about Al-Anon. I like to describe mixed emotions this way. It's kind of like the feeling you get when your teenage daughter comes in at 4 in the morning with a Gideon Bible under her arm. Oh, but I stayed, and I had so much to learn. Have you ever wondered where the ideas of AA came from? You know, God has his own big book. And the part of the big book that seems to be so, so beneficial early A was 13th Corinthians, the Sermon on the Mount, and my mom's favorite was James, the book of James, Faith Without Works is Dead. And mom and dad had belonged to an organization called the Oxford Group. Now, the Oxford group was a, a, a group whose tenets were back to first century spirituality, started by a Lutheran minister from Pennsylvania. And they went to those meetings. And they shared. They had many, many things that, that worked into our program. They talked to each other program problems over. They, you know, they met with other people. And uh, things that have held us in really good stead. But... 
it was inevitable that they part with the Oxford group because, uh, well, there were, there were some differences that couldn't be settled. In the first place, the Oxford group catered to the upper middle class, and the early alcoholics were not upper middle class. And the Oxford group wanted publicity, and the early alcoholics already had all the publicity there. And the Oxford group had a form of a fist step that they would take a new guy up in one of the bedrooms of T. Henry Williams' house and bore in on him until he admitted what his problem was. <clears throat> well, you know, that is a form of open confession, and it was not acceptable to people of the Catholic faith. Now, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but there are Catholics that drink. So it was inevitable that they part ways, but we owe people a tremendous debt of gratitude. That and God's big book were the sources of info, plus outside reading. Dad was a voracious reader. My recovery in Al-Anon, we had a lot of anger that we had to thrash out. I had to learn in any relationship that it doesn't have to be 50-50. Sometimes it's 90-10. Sometimes it's 1090. And what's the difference? What's the difference? I had to learn to peel away the past, and the past dies slowly. Many of these things I had to learn that have been so beneficial to me. I, uh, <clears throat> I want to tell you the recovery was not easy for us, but we hung in there. <clears throat> Some of the beautiful, beautiful lessons I've learned, and I can only share my part with you. Honesty. I always thought I was honest. You know, cash register honesty. Lady gave me too much change. I'd say, here, you gave me a quarter too much. Just so proud of myself for being so honest. <clears throat> then there was uh, resume honesty. You know, the, basically the truth, but you gussied it up a little bit. Yeah. Then there's program honesty, absolute, total, total honesty that you've taught me. When I can show you me just like I am, warts and all, and you do the same for me, we can have an instant, intimate relationship, and I know of no other programs in the world that you can do this. Freedom. You know, I think when we get here... We have a freedom. Do you remember the old uh, country and western song, Me and Bobby McGree? You know, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. That's the kind of freedom we have when we get here. There's nothing left. Then as we work the program and we decide that we're going to do this, we have a freedom of choice. First time in a long time. Make good choices, make bad choices, but we have a freedom of choice. And my sponsor, I have a spiritual sponsor, and he said, Bob, he said, for me, there's a higher one. He said, what I do for my freedom is when I get up in the morning, I say, okay, God, you're the in-house manager. You're running it today. I'll do the legwork, but you point me in the direction. And he said, that gives me another level of freedom, and that's as high as I've gotten. So many of these things, so many benefits. Love, you know, love is a learned phenomenon. I had to learn to accept love. My parents gave me all the love that anybody could ever want, but I had a barrier. You just get so close. 
It's only since I've been in the program that I've learned to receive love because I can't give away something I don't have. Spirituality. You know, I was raised in the Episcopal Church. That's Catholic light. <laughs> but God was used to improve my conduct. You know, he, he was up there watching me. You know, you just grew up and he's going to get you. Well, when you get to be an adult, that doesn't sound so great idea, so you lose that one. Forget that one. <clears throat> I was a World War II, I was a bomber pilot and flight commander, and I flew 45 missions out of Africa, and our losses were heavy. So I had another relation, a different relationship with my God. I had a 911 relationship. You know, I made deals with God. Yeah, well, isn't that silly? You know, God, if you'll do this, I swear I'll never, ever do that again. But now that I am in these programs, I have, my God is a loving, heavenly Father. My Father, we're all God's kids. He wants me to do better, loves me just like I am. I can talk to him just like I can talk to you. I talk to my God as I'm driving down the highway even, you know. God, did you see that SOB cut us off? <laughs> so, if you're new here and your life is just the pits and you think it's just starting from nothing, just remember, so did these programs start from nothing. There's hope for you, absolute hope. And if you're new here, and you're badly in need of a miracle, these programs are absolute miracles, and all of us sitting in here are miracles. And if you will talk to us, and you don't bother us, you help us. If you will talk to us, if you will stay with us, if you will do what people ask you to do, you've got your miracle coming. And I say to you, don't you quit before your miracle. Thank you very much. Just stand back up. We have some presents for you. And again, like last night, you can open them now or you can save them for later. Hmm. Oh, good. I brought my pocket knife. All right. If I can find it. There's an Alan on. He's prepared. <laughs> Hang in there.